Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Aerosmith. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Come on, boy, the tape is rolling. One, two, one, two, three, two. So I got Dennis, and we're going to talk about Aerosmith. The thing I want to do with Aerosmith in particular is, at least up front, mention all the guys. I mean, because it's like five dudes throughout all these years, except for a very short period of time. Right. And it's that's pretty fucking awesome. And they're still still at it too. Yeah, they're, they're still doing it. They're they're supposedly on their farewell tour now. Yes, and I'm going to take my son to see that. Are you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you should because I've never seen them bad. I you know I have. <laughs> well, you know, when I saw them bad, it was kind of like um, bad, good, bad. Like it was sloppy, kind of you know, bar bandish, mm-hmm. kind of. You know, yeah. it was rock and roll. But that was the tour with Jimmy Crespo and Rick DeFay. Oh, you saw that? That's yeah. a rare one. To yeah. See. So we'll get to that. It's okay. Um, so anyway, obviously there's Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and then you got the Li Three. The less interesting three. I guess that they, they call themselves that. They call themselves that, right. Brad Whitford is criminally underrated guitar player. Yes, he is. And I was listening to some of the records today. It's like, man, Joey Kramer's got the, got a swing, you know? He, he does. And then Tom Hamilton. Very memorable bass lines. Yeah. Always, yeah. always out front in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was very important. But those guys were like soldiers, those three guys. The shit they had to deal with. They dealt with. The, the other two drove them yeah. up the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, first album. Was that 73? Yes, it was. Which is a great year for records. Not my favorite Aerosmith album, but 
<clears throat> Man, it has some tracks. Well, how about a time and a place where a band, you spot talent and a band was allowed to develop? Your first album didn't have to be Boston. Not a lot of money spent on it, yeah. but I like that record. I don't dislike it because, you know, obviously Dream On is awesome, but like Walking the Dog.
make us all around. We'll stop coming on and then we just agree and say we gotta move out. Don't sit this morning in. I said we gotta move out. Don't sit this morning in. That you could tell that they were a very rehearsed band at the time, but they were very young and quite haven't quite had gotten to the rock god status that was soon to come. But they do get to it on that record, which contains Dream On. If my life's in books, written pages, living, learn from fools and from sages, you know it's true. All the things come back to you. somebody else. It's <laughs> weird. And that's what throws me off, I think, more than anything else. You know who he sounds like on that record? Uh, Danny Joe Brown from Molly Hatchet. God, you're right. He's what he sounds like on that. You're right. Most of those songs, to me, is the thing that bugs me. I'm glad he didn't, like, ruin Dream On with that.
One thing about that record is that they were taking it serious. They were very well rehearsed. And you know, they weren't that far away from a uh, Southern rock. No, no, sound. in fact, that's they exactly right. You know, they swing. Um, it, was a, it was a fantastic start. Well, she's a woman of the world and God, she knows it. To me, when they start getting Jack Douglas on board for the production, he's like what, like about half into Get Your Wings? Yes. And I love Get Your Wings. It's sort of like a progressive step to me, all the way until Rocks. Get Your Wings is where it really came into focus. Uh, I love, uh, okay, so it has Same Old Song and Dance, which right. is, t I think, in their set list to this day. Right, right. So that's a big one. Lord of Thighs, that's right. on there, Yeah, right? Lord of Thighs, yeah. Which, Spaced. Light in years, disappears, 20 million years on my brain, synthesized, overrides, trying to keep from going insane, and my soul. beautiful seasons of weather. Man, that's one of my favorite Aerosmith songs. It's like in my top, like, probably three. last time I saw them, they played that, and it, it was just amazing. The beginning of them having their arrangement skills. The guitar solos were less jammy and more focused, more part of the song. Um, they, that's the first record that starts on. Bob Ezrin had a part in that record. Do you know any stories about him bringing in like people to play some of the lead He parts? always did that. Oh, Steve Hunter and uh, Dick Wagner. Those two guys could play. They were struggling to get the guitar solo on um, Train Captain Rolling, on the fake live version of it. Right, <laughs> it's, out. Yeah. and it's not even live. Right, right. <laughs>
did they get? Was it Michael Wagner? It was Steve Hunter, I think. I think a lot of those guys back then would get studio nerves. And that was apparently what happened. Yeah, and apparently, you know, Bob Ezrin was a taskmaster. So, you know, they might not have reacted. Because the, the first album was really almost like rolling tape. Yes, you know, that's what it sounds like. But the second album. So I don't know how it was they ended up with just Jack Douglas. But to me, the Jack Douglas years, so that's starting with Toys and Attic. their rubber sole revolver really the thing about like that period and my love of the band during that time was the really weird tracks were the ones that just just got me man uncle salty
His sense of the melody. All that like psychedelicness stuff going on with that shit. Yes. You know, oh man, you know, they touched on it some in, in Get Your Wings. And this to me is full fledged. Like it it's it's really like trippy. 
I don't know, man. It's drug music for sure. I mean, that shit was certainly but made. Good. It's when things were working. Well, right, right. Which, by the way, only lasts for a little while. Yeah. We all know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, it, like Ron. Uh, one night we were listening to this, and uh, Ron was over there, and uh, we this one I've got my turntable set up, and I pulled out the Randy Estridge to- Toys in the Attic, and we were listening to it. And you know, Ron, he he didn't grow up on this stuff like we did. He knew it existed, you know, and whatnot, of course. But he said, he said, even when they get beetly, they still sound slimy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's the difference between the Aerosmith I love and the Aerosmith I don't. Is that that just oil and grease and grunge? I mean, it's like grunge. It definitely is one of the roots of grunge music. But that sound, and then you throw in like this psychedelicness, and that's. It's a, uh, I don't know. It's it's getting that headspace, especially let's do with headphones, and it just takes you somewhere else. And man, Uncle Salty. Just... Uncle Salty was one that I listened to. And that was well, that whole first side I listened to over and over yeah. again. Uh, for a hard rock band, Steven Tyler started becoming a clever lyricist, right. the way the lyrics actually kind of matter. Back then, that was your make or break, right? That was a business deal. And see, here's the thing that sucks, and I've mentioned this on the show before, too, is that we've heard some of these songs so many goddamn times. Yes. That it's hard sometimes to not go back and remember again why it was just so awesome and the reason we have heard it a million times. And I mean, Walk This Way is like a perfect song. Well, okay, so now you have the perfect record rock and roll record and you have the rarest or rare for a rock and roll band hard rock band a hit right. an actual hit single right Obviously, Joe and Steve, but it really hadn't broken up that way yet. It was still like a band. Yes. You know, and it was mostly like, well, you know, like in the Sgt. Pepper's movie, the future villain band. And they played it to the T. And if you go back and look at all the stuff, you're like, man, I love Aerosmith. I love that period. But look at what came after, you know, Motley Crue. We're talking about Motley Crue. And, and, you know, bands like Faster Pussycat. (laughs) You know, and all these bands trying to get that thing. 
The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that those guys never got that you were just mentioning that the Aerosmith had was that the swing, like you were talking about. They didn't have the jazz background. Joey Kramer's meter on those songs is so good that there was a lot of time and thought put into that. That was not just slopped around. And if you listen to it, he is right in the pocket on every single one of those songs. And that has something to do with why everyone likes that. Well, and the other thing is that you know, him being in the pocket like that, we'll talk about this, but that's part of the reason those songs and those albums were sampled, you know? Yes! I mean, <laughs> Walk This Way didn't just happen because Rick Rubin made it happen. People were actually sampling that record, you know, because that's a badass groove. Well, what do you think about, like, No More, No More, Bloodstains the Ivories of My Daddy's Baby Grand? I ain't seen the daylight since I started this band. It's like, it's so simple, but it's just like a slice of life. Yeah, it's true. Alien thing going on in it, you know, which is 
you wouldn't think of anything would work like that. But he he was already moving ahead. You know, well, he's what I hear. Hard rock. What I hear on that record more than the other two is Steven Tyler. I mean, it's not like I'm sure he was a peacock even back in the day, but he's just he's in his element. The confidence level in the whole band on that album, I, I think that's really a, why it steps up from even Get Your Wings.
confidence, just to, they knew they had something. It, what's important is Brad Whitford and Joe Perry as guitar players. The solos became part of the song, the arrangement, and I really love that. The guitar solos became an intricate part of the song. shit on this record and then also it helps that it has a great album cover yes it's one of those records that looks like it sounds it's a brown record <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, then, you know, we get into, and I'm pulling the records out because we're doing it just so in case I have to look at something. Then, you know, rocks. It wasn't even a year later, right? I mean, they were torn in between. Back then, you didn't, if you were hot, it was time for the next record. And how they pulled that off after going on, I'm sure, a tour that never ended, it's pretty incredible, too. Well, you know, they, they did the, the thing in Back in the Saddle. That's, you know, Steven Tyler with Cowboy Boots and Spurs on a box or something, you know, instead of getting a sample of a horse and all that kind of shit, he made it all up in the studio. You know, there was a thing going around uh, where you could you could get rock band recordings right. and then break them up and listen to them. Yeah. And they, if you break up Black in the Saddle and just listen to that, it is so good. Mm. You just listen to the vocals, just listen to the drums, the guitar solo at the end. There's all kinds of weird stuff you can't, you can't tell what's going on. And I've told the story a couple times on the show where a guy named Roger Buchanan, who lived across the street, they were getting shipped to Germany. You know, we lived on an army base, and his wife was making him get rid of a bunch of records. And Aerosmith Rocks is in there. Yes. I really, I, I know in the background somewhere, I had heard Walk This Way and Dream On, but man, he put on Back in the Saddle.
fade outs of those songs. They were the masters of the fade out. I, I have to say that they that nobody had fades yeah. like that. Like events would go on in the fade. I think you could turn somebody on purely by saying, listen, this fade out <laughs> without the rest of the song because they're so cool. And that, that's that's another awesome fade out. His guitar, Joe Perry's guitar solo, he was a snotty sounding guitar player. Yeah. Brian Whitford was more the melodic. Right. Joe Perry seemed to play off the cuff and was kind of uh, giving you a look while he was playing. He was a very uh, an aggressive guitar player. And man, that that solo, the stuff he does in the end of Back in the Saddle is fantastic. Well, he's yeah. playing the 12 string bass on that too. You know, I yeah, mean, it's it was awesome. Yeah. But my favorite part of that in the fade out is when uh, Steven does the yodel. Yes. I believe that's the first time you started really hearing the uh, now patented Steven Tyler scream. Back when you would hear him do those little things that he does that are now like cartoonish. Yes. They were so cool back then. Though. Yes. You could tell the guy did his homework. Like he listened to like Satchmo and stuff. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, 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 yeah. Like he had the blues phrasing. I mean, you could tell. And that's well, I mean, apparently he played drums in his dad's big band. Right. You can tell that he grew up around music. He's a talented guy. Right. Now, the other guys are real talented, but they came up the new way. They, they got a garage band. They wanted to be the Beatles, you know, that whole thing. Whereas he was coming from a different place. Right. Have you heard any of that? I think his band, what was his band called? Chain Reaction uh, from the 60s? Yes. That's pretty good. It's not terrible. Sure. He, so, yeah, him being 16 or right. 17 or whatever, right. he's effortlessly mimicking what was big at the time.
And I like that song. I, I thought it was pretty good too. What do you think of these tracks where the only two tracks I can think of in this classic era that were just straight up heavy metal? What's the song? Nobody's Fault? There you go. We're talking about Brad Whitford back there playing some of the best guitar yeah. on there. And you and who we didn't know. You know yeah. The records don't break it up. Well, you know, I would just see the songwriting credits. And so I'd say, okay, so, you know, he had something to do with this, so I might pay a little more attention to it. Right. Another great song about... Um, now it's like into prophecy, right? Right. And the and the lyrics are very smart and sinister. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um, it's it gets a sense of doom.
a sinister sounding song. Well, it's like they have almost like one of those songs per album, you know, even up to and including Permanent Vacation. You definitely got to drop in that little strange thing on Sick of the Dog where it goes minor key and the guitar played like a, a harmony together. And it sounds very like much like the Alice Cooper band <laughs> right. kind of thing. Yeah. It just comes out of nowhere. Right. You right. know, where did that come from? Joe Perry's combination, you know. <laughs> So 
I mean, <laughs> damn. Until the Joe Perry project started, I always like was thinking, man, he should sing more like Keith Richards or something, you know? Because the tracks he would sing, which weren't very often, they were cool as shit. Uh, which we'll get to, you know, uh, Bright Light Fright, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, combination. And then, um, but I'm telling you, like, the two songs that probably got me more than any songs of any album I put on the first time was Get Your Let Out and Lickin' the Promise, the way they fit together. Back to back. Out. Yes, yes. Holy shit, man. Those, those songs, that was like where you were listening and... And it was like, you know, I knew nothing at this point about blues or any of that kind of stuff. But I was like understanding that was in there and it was something, you know, they'd taken it to some weird ass place. And uh, the concept of the riff, there, if you listen to that, that, that thing without the vocals that I was talking about on rocks, man, the, the inventiveness that would soon disappear, right. that it became very... Uh, Okay, that's good enough. Yeah. It seemed like to me, anyway. Right. At the time, there wasn't good enough. They kept mo- moving it forward. They did so many different things with riffs and dropping beats, and it was pretty impressive to this day. The next album that comes out is Draw the Line. So when I got to draw the line, I was kind of disappointed. I mean, let's be realistic. Can you keep something like that going? Can you do Toys in the Attic and Rocks and then do Toys in the Attic and Rocks 4, 5, 6? It's just not realistic. And especially not the condition they were in by that time. 
love this long draw line. I don't know how he didn't just spit out a long on the stage. If you watch old uh, film of them doing that, he's always got the uh, the maracas. Right. There's this buildup, and he's like psyching himself. And it's yeah. like an athletic event, and then he'll just launch himself at the microphone and then spit that out. Whatever he says during that part is some heavy shit. Is it any any wonder that this record was a letdown? The fact that by this time, what, two years time, right. Jack Douglas is the producer trying to piece something. Where it was, they were all working together as one giant team. Now he's having to piece them together. The two guys, Joe Perry's up in the attic. of. The, they were recorded at like an old... It was a mansion. Convent or something. Yeah, it was some huge mansion. And he's up in the attic doing heroin and shooting guns in the attic. Oh, and riding his motorcycle. <laughs> That's in, all true. In the house? In the house, yes. And it was like on the third floor or something. And they, he wouldn't come to record. He'd be in the house where they're recording. Yeah. And he, they, he wouldn't, they wouldn't see him for two days. Right. What was he doing? Well, that's where the LI3, those three guys, would be working that whole time. Doing the best they could. Doing the best they could. There's some riffs. There's some riffs and stuff that, uh, there's, you know, some of the stuff on the Pandora's box, box set. They were all heroin about them. Yeah. There's still good stuff on the record. Oh, well, I still love the record. Because I was kind of disappointed, but when I look at it, I wouldn't change anything on this. It's a good record. Sight for Sore Eyes.
That's a fucking groove. That's a good one. That would show up in there, so. Yeah. And then Red Light Fright was almost like punk rock. Kings and Queens, that's one like, you know, with the kind of Dungeons and Dragons lyrics and stuff. And then it has like <laughs> the sample that sounds like it's from Psycho. That, you see? Yes. You see?
Kings and Queens. Another great guitar solo, that's Brad Whitford. Yeah, me and my friend Hunter uh, saw them in 85, and so that was the second time I'd seen them, but that was the first time he'd seen them. And afterwards, he was like, man, I, I had no idea Brad Whitford was such a badass. Unlike a lot of 70s guys, where your thing was a Strat through a Marshall, or a Les Paul through a Marshall, and you could tell a guitar player within three or four notes of right. who it was, right. you right. know? Those guys didn't do that. They uh, were all changing up guitars and amps all the time. And that's one of the fun things of seeing them nowadays is they go they, now with all the technology and you're able to make these changes during the show and it's it's fantastic. Now he's playing a Strat, now he's, you know, they put a lot of thought into it and they always did that on his records. You could still tell Joe Perry from his playing, even if he was playing a Strat, a Tele, or a Les yeah, Paul. It was always him though. But they did switch up sounds a lot. Milk Cow Blues, I think, is the best Elvis Presley cover ever. Well, you know, that's when he died. That was that was the year Elvis died, right? 77? I never thought about that. Yeah. So that's kind of like their tribute, maybe. And to me, hell of a tribute, man. Don't believe me. 
End of part one. This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. To be continued in the next episode. Stay tuned.